Welcome to this edition of the Mission Bitcoin Podcast. On today's episode, we talk with Texas Slim. Slim is a seventh generation Texan. He has a passion for Texas and the culture that it defines. We talk about his fascinating journey from growing up in a small town in the panhandle of Texas to working within the telecommunications industry. His roots and his independent spirit finally led him down the Bitcoin rabbit hole where he started learning the truth about food production in the U.S. His fascinating Substack essay, Harvest of Deception, is how I first learned about Slim. And as a fellow Texan, I wanted to know more, so I invited him on the podcast. We also talk about Slim's Texas Beef Initiative, an innovative way for you to personally secure your own food supply chain. This is a fascinating discussion. I know you will enjoy it. Today, you will also meet Matt Solick. Matt is the lead creative arts pastor at North Metro Church in Kennesaw, Georgia. Matt is joining the team as co-host and producer of the show. Also, I've just published my Bitcoin for Churches book on Amazon. It's a comprehensive go-to resource from start to finish on understanding Bitcoin and our corrupt financial system and how the church can leverage Bitcoin's technology for God's kingdom. Please check it out. Thank you to all of you who faithfully listen to the show. On various episodes, I've interviewed pastors and missionaries. Please consider donating to their ministries. I've included their lightning or Bitcoin addresses in the show notes. Thanks so much. Before we jump into the show, I want to make you aware of Bitcoin Lake. Bitcoin Lake is a project I'm starting in Panajachel, Guatemala on Lake Atitlan. I'm hoping we can model Bitcoin Beach in El Salvador. I need your help and I want this to be a Bitcoin community project. Please check out the project on Twitter at Lake Bitcoin. The name Bitcoin Lake is backwards on Twitter at Lake Bitcoin. And I will leave links in the show notes. Please consider being a part of this today. Thank you. Hey, Slim. Uh, thanks for joining us today. And for my audience members, I also have a, a new co-host, Matt Solick. He's my co-host and producer and, and partner in ministry. And so you'll be hearing his voice on the on the podcast. Slim, thanks uh, so much for this time. I I think I ran across your, your article uh, first, I, I think just randomly and started reading it. And I was just the, the harvest of deception, just started reading it, was just fascinated by what you were explaining and what you did. And I think as a, I think most Bitcoiners who can identify the truth and see falsehood in our society really gravitate towards what you were able to uncover and, and it validates some other things. But, you know, why don't you just kind of introduce who you are, you know, where you live. I love your story. Um, you know, being a Texas boy myself, it's, it's, uh, I, I just really identify with you and yeah, let's just start there. Sure. Hey, Patrick, thanks for having me on. I was, I was pretty excited when you contacted me. I, I mean, I follow you and everything. I think we followed each other. Um, mission 21 M is, it's got a lot of deep meanings to it, doesn't it? So, yep. uh, we're all on a mission here, but, uh, yeah, I was, I'm seventh generational Texan. I think everybody's probably heard that more than once, but I like to say it. So we're going to say it, but, uh, I grew up in small town, Texas. Yeah. It's out is a place called Canyon, Texas. Um, ancestral, you know, uh, my grandfather, the one that I like to talk about, he was a farmer. He started my that side of the family pioneered up into the panhandle in the late 1800s. And he farmed um, the land up there from the late 1800s all the way through two wars, uh, the Great Depression, the Dust Bowl. He survived. He raised a family. 
he did it in a very decentralized way. And, you know, that's why I basically like to bring him into the situation. Um, I grew up tough, rough and tumble, Texas way, uh, small town, Texas, yeah. broken a lot of bones, uh, rode motorcycles, horses, you know, Friday, I know fr Friday night football. Friday night football. Yep. I had a couple of scholarships. So I chose to <laughs> choose a different path at that time. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it was a way of raising and understanding what integrity is, one understanding about um, basically intentional living, uh, having to have some agency in your actions and understanding what skill sets were having a low time preference before a lot of people understood what low time preference was you were pissed off by the low time preference that you were being taught at the time but now i see our society needs it in a big way so but i left uh i left canyon texas i fled with 150 dollars in my pocket when i was a young man and i landed in austin and you know that that's an amazing story that happened from there. I've been around the world a couple of times, rode a motorcycle across Asia. Oh my goodness. I've oh. spent a month in Amsterdam and I went and basically stalked the Van Gogh Museum for 30 days and they basically got worried about me. So who is this dude? <laughs> so, you know, I've had a lot of good life experiences. I've been all over the United States. I've been through every state except Alaska and Hawaii. And, uh, but, being kind of a blue collar Texas boy, I also fell into a form of technology that expanded my horizons in how we are as a society and how we're being engineered. I've uh, worked in the intelligence labs for a telecommunication company in Austin for a good while. And I worked at that company as a contractor. So I had certain access and certain viewpoints a lot of the employees don't have because they live in a walled garden. I didn't have as much of a walled garden. All of that said, I, I know food, I know harvest. I love harvest. It's spiritual to me because of my family and for, you know, my belief system, my faith system. And so I said, I've got to go on harvest. I've got to use this old time skill set to get out there. And then you got to use some networking abilities that you learn. You got, because you understand technology, know how they're manipulating social engineering our minds these days. So let's put all this together didn't know where it was going. I had no clue. I, I didn't have to go on harvest. I'm a generational, you know, I'm Gen X. I don't have to go on harvest. That's a young man's game. Yeah. But I'm better myself. They enjoyed me. They, they, they loved my wisdom and my wit and they liked, you know, they liked me having me aboard and I knew, I knew how to do things, you know, combines and tractors. So it all fell together in there. I, I dove deep into source of the seed all right that was my mission well we're going to get into all that um i you know as we were sharing before we started recording i spent some time up in your neck of the woods and i'd never seen the sky turn red until i moved to lubbock <laughs> yeah it's amazing <laughs> and it, isn't it and and mud starts raining from the sky because it's yeah. so it's so <laughs> dusty and i remember uh during this cotton i mean at the time 25, I think 25% of the world's cotton is, is harvested in the Panhandle, New Mexico area right there. And I remember, remember driving by the cotton fields and, you know, it was like October. I can't remember that when they harvest the cotton. Right now. Yeah. So looking out at this field, it was just covered in white and I thought it had snowed. Yeah. I thought, wait a minute, there's no snow anywhere. It was just, it was amazing, amazing sight. But uh, Canyon 
um, I mean, that's where the Comanches, isn't that where their holdup was before the yeah. cavalry found them? Yeah, that was their last stand, basically, was Paladoro Canyon. Yeah, Paladoro, yeah. <clears throat> that was 10 miles of, from where I grew up. That was my playground. Um, yeah. And I grew up three blocks away from the historical museum that has everything about, you know, everything. <laughs> that That's an amazing story. I My, my brother still lives in Dallas, and the um, he recommended the book, The Empire of the Summer Moon. Have you read that book about the Comanche? Yeah, I have. Oh, it's my been goodness. a while. It's that's amazing. Fantastic. And, you know, when you read stories like that, you, you see that the heart of darkness doesn't, it's not Anglo-Saxon white males, you know? I mean, no. Comanche, the Comanche were not warrior Indians until the horse was introduced. I mean, they were actually shunned, a shunned tribe in the, the Colorado mountains until they Yeah, they the had to horse. flee. They, yeah, they had to flee, and they had to find a new way to live. And they found it in the Great Plains, and course paladoro was their oasis yeah it's it's a great story so mm-hmm. i really resonate with that so you know slim let's uh let's back up a little bit um i i kind of I, I i love your your fleeing story of you know when you went to austin probably i mean we're both gen xers so maybe mm-hmm. austin wasn't corrupting back then but if you did that <laughs> now you'd probably get corrupted but i would <laughs> so um i mean you did that, and then um, that was just to escape the the small town feel, and like I want to be independent, and you know, heck with this, yeah. I'm, I'm leaving. Basically, I didn't have to leave. What <clears throat> my father, the '80s were bad for guys our age. Yep. <clears throat> A lot of people don't realize what the '80s were like. Pop culture was in, MTV was in. It was very popular. We lived our lives on MTV in a lot of ways. Farm aid had happened. You know, most land was seized in ways that people don't understand. Um, My father had a hard time. Savings and loan industry hit during the 80s. We lost a lot. My My father, he was an electrician. He broke his back. And basically, he was laid up for a couple of years. And so, you know, my college money was gone. So I was like, okay. I'm not going to stay here and dig ditches. You know, I had a university there, and I grew up three blocks away from the university. This feels like high school to me. And as such as a young kid, I had a wanderlust to me that nobody could control. <laughs> and so I knew one person in Austin, and I said, I'm going to get out of this small town. I don't care what it takes. And I ended up on 6th Street, and I started making cash. I started meeting people that traveled. And after that, I mean, it was no turning off that faucet of wanderlust. And it, it went in a lot of different directions, you know, to, and here we are right now. The only wanderlust I had was squashed by the Army. But, yeah, <laughs> growing, growing up in Houston in the 80s, I mean, there was the oil, the oil bust, and mm-hmm. uh, it, was, it was horrible. It was, it was just really, really bad. So I completely identify with that. So, you know, so... I, I ride a motorcycle, so I want to hear about this motorcycle trip around Asia. I mean, how did you end up in Asia from on sure. this journey? Well, it, I had a friend. He was a—I don't even know where he is anymore. But <laughs> he's somewhere. He—he's uh, a horticulturalist, and he would uh, source all of his orchids out of Asia, Vietnam, and Thailand. And he'd go twice a year, and so I had some money saved up. I was between contracts at a certain time. 
I used to work half a year. I used to travel half a year. That's how I used to live life in a lot of ways. And um, he said, let's go to Thailand. I said, sure, I'll hang out with you. So we went, flew into Bangkok. He, he went off to, and I stayed in Bangkok for about a week and uh kind of get you, you get you know get your jet lag kind of get your bearings get the mats go to sukhumvit row find your travel books start making connections understand how to say sabadi ka and ka and you know learn to talk a little bit of the language and so he let he went off to vietnam and i said well i'm gonna get on this motorcycle because you can rent motorcycles in Thailand. You can go from village to village. You can switch motorcycles and it costs back to, you know, when I did it, it cost very little. So you just switch motorcycles. You can change them from a scooter all the way up to a Harley. Mm. So learn how to ride on the left side of the road. And here we go. And, uh, you know, I knew how to say hello. I knew how to say a few things. Where's the petrol and where's the bathroom? Yeah. It was, it's not that hard. The Thai people are, are lovely yeah. people. Yeah. I was really into studying what Buddhism was about, the philosophy. I don't look at Buddhism as a religion. It's a philosophy. And um, I really dove deep into the philosophy of, you know, what Buddhism is, you know, ease of mind. And so that just took me to all kinds of places all over Thailand, Cambodia. I went to Angkor Wat, Phnom Penh. And at the time, the book in uh, in the bookstores in Thailand was called Girls, Guns, and Ganja. <laughs> so it was pretty rough. <laughs> and so, you know, you had to watch your back. Yeah, you know, and I was, well, I'm a Texan, so I can carry myself pretty well in a way that a lot of people, I don't choose not to, I guess. But I just went from, you know, place to place all the way up to the border of almost China and everything in Thailand to, uh, you know, from Chiang Mai all the way down to Trang in the southern tip where it's close to, you know, there's a lot of uh, Muslim down there. So there's a lot of fighting going down there in southern Thailand, people don't realize. And so I just went from everywhere, you you know, Koh Phi Phi to Phnom Penh to, uh, to uh, Phuket to Chiang Mai, Chiang Rai. So just all over Thailand and just backpack and you just ride and get a map and you just go. That's awesome. That's awesome. What, uh, so how did you finally make your way into the tech industry? And, you know, I find that story kind of interesting and sure you know, the, the underbelly of, of national security. What, and it's kind of a funny story. I'm, I'm kind of like this, I guess I was made for it, but I lived on West campus in Austin, which was two blocks, three blocks away from university of Texas. When I first got the university of or to Austin, I always wanted to go to UT. Well, I couldn't go to UT, but I lived on West Campus. So all of my friends were students. They were studying Russian, or they were studying how to be a banker, or they were studying technology, they were studying radio, television, film. Across the board, I had friends that were doing some fascinating things. I said, well, back then you could go on campus and you, nobody cared. And so I just started sneaking into classes and learning stuff. <laughs> So I did that for several years, but I had a girlfriend and uh, she was into radio, television and film. And so I started really diving into technology from that viewpoint, but then I really kind of fell into the networking aspects of technology. So I started working in technology. I taught myself. I read books. I went down to the bookstore. I never took a class. I just taught myself networking and I just kind of, you know, BS my way into a job when I was young with Motorola and they paid wow. me $40 an hour to set up small, small networks. Wow. 
And then I ended up in a startup. And then after that, that startup sold to Charles Schwab for a half a billion dollars. And then I just, I, I could go work wherever I wanted to. Yeah. Wow. Um, I, I've heard you tell some, some stories about the, you know, what you learned about surveillance and mm-hmm. you know, the enmeshment of telecommunications in the U S government. Uh, maybe we don't need to spend a lot of time on that, but I mean, what, yeah. what did you, when you learn that, I mean, what, what did you think about it and what does it make you think about the government now? And do you think that it just seems like it's getting worse and worse and worse. It doesn't seem like there's a way back, back from that. Well, what happened, I was working for a company. It was a, it was a internet company that had a lot of, a lot of copyrights, a lot of patents on some technology. Well, the telecommunication company wanted them. So they bought us out. By buying us out, they found out who I was and my skill set. And so I started contracting for the telecommunications. They vetted me in the intelligence apparatus. I used to I'd fly, out, uh, fly out to New York or been out to California several times. But I saw what was going on and what happened whenever we had the expansion of broadband, of course, we had the expansion of data. That's when data really started going, hmm this data can be used. It's kind of ugly. We need to really start understanding what we can do with this data. And so by that, I was right in the middle of data being recognized as a weapon against us. I was in the, where they could trap that data and they could collect that data because of broadband. There's things that were going on that nobody knew what was going on at the time. By doing that, I was I was with the uh, the telecommunications whenever 641A came out, when that was basically the surveillance of the citizens of the United States that happened in San Francisco. So, you know, things were happening. Things were we never knew exactly how bad it was going to get because we thought we still had some freedom. We lost that freedom a long time ago. They captured us ten years before we even knew they captured us. In the telecommunications industry, their technology is usually five to 10 years more advanced than what we're using right now. In ways, they usually don't implement it into society because society is not ready for the usability of it. But the technology is advanced where they know it's coming. We're living in their past. Mm. And I found out stuff like that. You know, I've, I worked with companies like Facebook, Google, the big the big companies and understand understood how engineering was going on with dopamine and all of that so i'd go out to a think tank i was in a think tank as recently as back in 2018 up in in boston you know outside of mit and i met with a lot of people with google and facebook and linkedin and all those companies and basically their plans the plans of action and how they're really going to use data to decrease our physical footprint on this earth and increase our augmented footprint on this earth. So it's the separation of self. This is what I like to call it. That is basically being engineered right now because they've lost the value of the fiat dollar in ways that they can. So they always recreate false value and they always say it's something else like climate change. It has nothing to do with what they're doing right now. But so by doing that, deleting our physical self and basically creating a new virtual self they've created a whole new economy in ways that people don't understand it, that uh, that's fascinating so i mean <clears throat> I, I guess in in essence the the metaverse that facebook's creating or the the virtual 
-hmm. I mean, if they can push that, then they can effectively say they're helping save the universe or the, the world because they're, you're not having to travel to a conference or whatever. I mean, is that, is that the, Oh yeah, the, of course. Is that the cell? Yeah, that's the big cell. I mean, it's going to be the cell, you know, they're going to really hit the kids with it. They'll hit the senior citizens with it, but they're really focused on the kids, of course, because they can indoctrinate them. But what, you know, something that people don't understand, and this is not something that you, I can share as far as the author or anything or the who headed it up, but there was a study before COVID came out and it was a global study on how people vacationed. And they basically knew behavior in a way that nobody really knew. They knew that people went on vacation. All they do is change living rooms. They don't go on vacation. They're told what to do, when to do it, what to eat, when to eat. And basically they're inclusive. They like being walled, being in the walled garden of their adventure because they're afraid to go hit the cobble streets of Playa de Carmen in Mexico. That's right. That's right. And so they knew how we were going to react as a society, that it wouldn't be hard to lock people down. Interesting. You know, I, I heard you on, I was telling you before the show, Cedric's show, The Bitcoin Matrix, and, mm -hmm. you know, the data manipulation and the data accrual that these companies have access to. You right. know, I, you know in with one of my businesses just in the retail space, um, talking with, you know, the companies like CBS and Walmart, I mean, just with your credit card, they, they know almost everything about you, you know, because you mm -hmm. use a credit card to buy certain things at certain times and, and they know exactly what you're buying just with your credit card. And sure. in fact, MasterCard, one of their biggest businesses is that sort of data that they give, they sell to um, retail stores like CVS and, and Walmart. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it, yeah. Um, so what, what, Okay, so I mean, I don't want to be the the hopium guy, but I mean, I, I'm the guy that I don't, I'm, you know, when I go vacation, I want to get out and I don't mm -hmm. want to, I, I want to push my boundaries, right? So, sure. but is there going to be, is Bitcoin going to be able to fix it? I mean, what, what or is there going to be, are there going to be two parallel universes where people like us are refusing to bow down to this augmented reality? And then we're just going to have a bunch of zombie minds that don't that don't care. We'll we'll always have two parallel universes from here moving out forward. <laughs> Bitcoin's not going to fix everything. Even people in the in the metaverse, they'll be using Bitcoin, but they just won't know that they're using Bitcoin. It'll be a base layer of value they don't understand. They don't care because they're in the metaverse. There's going to be two separate types of society that does come out of this. People that are actually going to become sovereign in ways that they can people that are going to have intentional living. Um, they're going to be intentionally focused on making decisions. That's what Bitcoin brings to us. We all understand what it does. The decentralized thought press process is going to be something that's very huge and very powerful. In the numbers game of percentages of people, I think that we are captured so bad right now, and I hope it changes. But I don't, I don't, I wrote, I wrote something. It was from St. Augustine, the city of God. Mm -hmm. And I, I said, let the poor court the rich. He wrote that over 2000 years ago. Most people think I wrote that now because I don't tell anybody it was St. Augustine and they, they associate with it. I think a lot of people, and this goes back to faith and spirits and all that kind of stuff. You know, I think a lot of people don't want to be, you know, 
they, they don't want to have the type of spirit that we've got that Bitcoin's bringing to the table of life right now, the truth that it is bringing to everybody's minds and spirits and basically behaviors. So I think, yeah, I think we're going to be parallel, but in the end, truth wins. We know that. I think we're at a point in time where we have a learning curve for a lot of people that are going to, we're going to have to go through first. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I think that, you know, on our side of the table, we would say that uh, certainly the, the world's been captured by a different spirit that, that um, Matt and I are, um, you know, we're, we're on the, we're on the different side. So, sure. um, so let, let's dive in a little bit, Matt, before we move on, do you have any questions or thoughts? Well, just one I, I think is really fascinating, and maybe I haven't made this connection before, just seeing the separation of what you just laid out, uh, this metaverse digital realm, and then the real realm, mm-hmm. and this separation, obviously, between uh, Bitcoin and maybe some of these other altcoins of where some of this exists inside of this metaverse, and you, right. you, know, you bring up the point of how, how you know people will be using Bitcoin in the metaverse, but maybe maybe they don't understand it or realize it. And I think there's an, there's an idea possibly around it that's, that's pretty fascinating, but um, I, uh, I'm interested to hear a little bit more about your story as well too, because I think as you talk about that separation, you're talking about, and we're talking about a world where we're actually talking about uh, serving the land, living in the land, having good, healthy food within our environment and this augmented reality. And that you can very much see this contrast where right now, all cryptocurrencies kind of seem to be moving forward in the same direction. Mm-hmm. But I, I think maybe what I'm a little bit fascinated by is just to maybe hear a little bit more about, uh, you know, whether it's now or, or in the future too, of just how, how maybe those things are actually separating out this augmented reality into what some of the things of your background that actually brings. Sure. The way I look at it is that we're definitely at a crossroad and not in society per se, that's tangible, but in our thought processes. Um, Within, you brought up food, and that's what I'm about. I'm about the source of the seed. What do I feel is the number one form of nutrition delivery to our brains that is most powerful and the most vital is animal protein. That would be beef. And so that's that's my number. That's the, that's what I'm laser-focused laser on. Well, people that are living in augmented reality, food is an afterthought. It is nothing that they, and we already do it as a society. We order pizza, we eat pizza pockets, we eat junk, we eat trash. We are the recycling bin of that trash. We're nothing more if that's what we choose to be. We're 78% obese, we're uh, or overweight, we're one out of two of us are diabetic or pre-diabetic. You can't argue those facts. By living in a form of augmented reality of food that they've already created, we're already there and they're wanting to notch it up a bit because what that means is it takes away your, your physical proudness. It takes away your strength of mind and spirit and you get your, basically your fix through that augmented reality of food. People think it's this matrix sci-fi game that's going on. No, it's right here, right now. People are unhealthy. We're metabolically already bankrupt. Okay. We know that. Yeah, so Slim, let's let, oh, yeah, and this is definitely where I want to go. But what what I mm-hmm. what I want to understand from your thought process is, did you come to this conclusion of fake food or augmented reality food, as you call it, first, or did you go on the heart? I mean, was it lay the chicken egg before us? Sure. I mean, what came What came first? Right. 
Well, you know, I, I started putting things through. I got laid up a couple of years ago. <laughs> and that's when I got into Bitcoin. I should have got into it earlier. Like we all should have. We all should have. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I'm kind of a rough and tumble guy. And so I had a pretty bad physical injury. It collapsed, it collapsed a portal vein in close behind my liver. So they didn't know what was wrong. And I was basically starving to death in a way. So what did I have to do? I had to look at food in a way because I couldn't do sodium for a while. There's things that I had to be, you know, eating right when I was laid up. I found that basically focus on food at the same time I found Bitcoin. And so I was like, whoa, okay. It's kind of hard for me to eat like I'm supposed to be eating right now as I heal. And so I'd study Bitcoin, I'd study food, I'd study Bitcoin, I'd study food. And then it, it just basically was a floodgate. And for, you know, a year and a half, I was just like, I became somewhat obsessed about it, very aware of it very healthy healthier now than i've ever been in my life because i chose to eliminate all of the centralized food that is thrown down our throats on a daily basis i said i'm going to cook this way i'm going to eat this way i'm going to create my lifestyle around this okay so what did you learn you must have reached a tipping point where there was an aha moment or, or something sure uh, yeah well, you know, we live in a society where we, we basically hijack the English language. We say something that's fat free. We say something like whole foods. Well, I had to go deeper than that. I had to understand what those words mean. What does a preservative mean? What does this mean? You know, what does a protein mean? What does sugar really mean? What is fruit? You know, all of that. And so by dissecting the English language and how they use it around our food supply, I've basically said, we don't have any whole food left in our existence right now. Mm. We really don't. In a lot of ways, we have very little whole food that we, we have able to basically purchase on a daily basis. That really was like a boom, like, oh, we're in trouble here. And if you go to the food aisles and you look and the amount of waste product that is in that food that has nothing to do with nutrition it is our food industry now it has nothing to do with the nutrition anymore and they're able to lie about that and so as you started investigating this i mean it, you you know as we investigate the fiat money system we could always go back to uh john maynard Keynes. so as you started investigating the food system where where did it lead you where did it start <laughs> as I was learning about Bitcoin, I was learning about the food system. They were the same thing. It happened at the same time. What the F happened in 1971? You had uh, the Nixon administration. We lost the value of our, our monetary value because we went off the gold standard. Well, guess what? We lost the value of food, too, and they had to create new fake commodities. One of those that I focused on was the rapeseed. And the rapeseed basically was outlawed in 1956 by the FDA by any type of human consumption. And so by knowing that, I was like, why would they do this? And, and just for this audience, rapeseed is what is used to make canola. Yes, exactly. Canola and so much other stuff, anything they want, really. And so by, by diving into rapeseed and canola, I was like, okay, a fake commodity. I came, I, I don't know if anybody had ever heard of that. I just started saying it. Well, how many fake commodities followed that fake commodity? 
how, okay, now let's look at our health as a nation. Okay, let's but look at obesity. Slim, let me ask you this. So what, why was there the need to do that? Why was there a change in the cooking oil or? Sure. Yeah. Well, in 1950, this is another fast that I tied together as well. Dwight Eisenhower had a heart attack in 1954. That created a study into the heart. There was all kinds of things that happened after Eisenhower uh, basically had a heart attack and they started really paying attention to people they shouldn't pay attention to. One of them was Ansel Keys. He came up with the cholesterol lie basically, and he had a, a lot of connections with a lot of bureaucrats in the government. So you combine that with the agricultural department that was basically trying to go fence to fence with monocropping at the time, they were able to basically put together some dialogue where they could kill the animal protein and say that cholesterol was horrible and you're going to drop dead at a heart attack. As they're saying, uh, canola is far better than um, animal fat. And that's when those two married together and they had many, many years of basically marketing plans and initiatives and basically able to build a whole new industry in the medical field, in the pharmaceutical field and the agricultural field. And, and so when you say far, uh, fence to fence monocrop, basically mm -hmm. they're, they're trying to use every square inch of that acreage to grow a cash crop cash crop and that's a good way to put a cash crop because back before 1971 you grew five crops you just didn't grow one crop well eric butts of the nixon administration said you're going to go big or you're going to go home and you're going to grow this corn this genetically modified rapeseed from fence to fence and you're not going to grow all this other crops you're going to sell and, one crop and so why why would a farmer before that time have five different crops versus the one because he sold to his community. <laughs> okay. He wasn't trying to feed the world. Okay. He wasn't trying to, you know, go on, you know, try to solve world starvation problems. It was about feeding 60 mile radius. And so he could grow his okra, he could grow his corn, he could grow whatever he wanted to, fruits and vegetables. And that worked. He didn't have to do anything. But plus, and this is when we started messing with the seed. You mess with the seed because you have to basically now do pesticides and herbicides. We didn't have chemicals in our food supply before then. And then that's when you insert Monsanto. And so, yeah, so I want to go down this path because it's fascinating. The, so basically we have, we have a point at which the ag department is promoting fence to fence, one seed, uh, one crop, but then there needs to be the ability to maximize the harvest of that crop. Mm -hmm. And then for that, you need to use chemicals and or genetically modified seeds for that purpose. Is that correct? Yeah. And you, yeah. And basically by saying that, let's, let's really focus on what you just said to manipulate a seed. Okay. You have to have scientists and people genetically modified that seed. That's an industry. Okay, to grow that seed, you basically, that's an industry. To harvest that seed now in a certain way, that's an industry. Okay, to process that seed, people don't understand how big of an industry that was just to process a rapeseed into a form of oil that could be used to put it in your car for oil or fry your chicken in it or to put it on your piece of bread. 
that's a big process. Okay, so the, the goal there was to basically take this oil that could be, it, it's sold as a cash crop period, but it can mm -hmm. be used as a food product, it can be used as a chemical, it can be used as a, a biodiesel, or it could be used in a lot of different products. That, sure. That, that was the goal? You bet. And, you know, that, we'll say canola, and they did it, well, our corn was pure. We had pure corn seeds from the Native Americans. We all know that story. Well, now they turn corn into gas, ethanol. So they hit it two fronts. Every and a lot of these seeds can be used for yes, many multi-purpose reasons instead of maybe what one thing that it was gave to us to be able to utilize as you know as we are here on this planet. Do Do you think that the the farming crisis in the eighties um, accelerated the the I guess the dissolution of, you know, the independent farmer. I mean, is that, is that when 100%. they- 100%. Oh, 100%. It, it took and, about 10 years to grow, you know, the late 70s, it was already starting to be felt because what happens with monocropping, you have these big industrial crops and farms. So, you know, there's still 80% of farmland in the United States is still independent farmers, but they're captured in a way that nobody talks about. But you get rid of that small farmer like my grandfather. I mean, what's small, he went big, you know, had a section or so. And, uh, but you get rid of him, you get rid of 10,000 small farmers. Yeah, that's that's pretty pretty effective way of doing it. I, but I don't remember that. What was the genesis of the, the farm farm issue in the 80s? Was it? They ran out of money. The money okay. had no value. It took them 10 years to realize that our dollar was not worth anything anymore. Used to, you didn't have to have this pesticide. Used to, you didn't have to have this herbicide. Used to, you didn't have to have this type of combine. Used to, you didn't have to have this type of tractor. So by devaluing the dollar like they did, the only way people don't understand here, the only way you keep that deception going is you create something on top of that failed value so that's why everything went big the machinery went big the pesticides went big the chemical went big and therefore who gets squeezed out of that the guy that doesn't know how to use it doesn't want to use it and if he doesn't he's selling the family farm yeah you know it's really no different than i remember in the 80s it was a big deal to buy usa famous walmart slogan and essentially what going big did it, it sold out our manufacturing base you know and sure. it's just, it's it's just horrible to look back at and i i had a podcast with uh, tim McElroy, and we talked about regenerative mm -hmm. farming and you know he he talks of the same thing with the cattle ranchers that you know they they're, they're ranchers that's what they want to do but they're up yeah. against this this global you know industrial you know ranching industry and they end up just selling out because they just can't compete, but they still want to ranch and they, they become tenant, yeah. tenant ranchers, tenement ranchers, or in your case with, with what you're talking about, tenement farmers, right. uh, it, it's, it's horrible. Um, so, uh, okay. So you were learning all this, Matt, I'm going to kind of move into the next section. Do you have any questions at, at, um, upon reflection there? Not, not really, other than just, I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is as we try to continue to scale up, what we're ultimately talking about here is, is scaling down, talking about more about community, which 
obviously yeah. Bitcoin fits into that, but uh, you're talking about, you know, bringing things down to where it is more com community oriented when we're talking about the way that we're actually preserving and using our food, e even in a community aspect, right? Well, yeah, we have to. My grandfather was, they had a party line system there, you know, from the phone to how they exchange food, uh, how they talk to people with their community-based lifestyles. Whenever we, we can't, we can't look at food and act like it's the same thing as everything else in our life that's mm -hmm. gone global. Okay, it's good to go to a nice restaurant that has a different type of recipe that we can enjoy. That's, that's a, fascinating, it's good. But for day-to-day -day life, we cannot rely on a one world food group that is catering to 9 billion people. We have to work, rely on a million communities that are basically taking care of their family, their friends, their communities in a way that we've already proven that we can, in a way that we did a thousand years before these guys came along in 1971. And of course, before that, but that's the catalyst year. Mm. We proved by, by, I hate to say the word evolution, by surviving this long, that we know how to do things. What they did in 1970s also, they convinced a lot of people, some farmers and some ranchers, that they couldn't think for themselves anymore. Just like they're doing right now. They're just convincing like they're doing, people. Yeah. yeah. Just like they're, they're doing right now. Right. Yeah. yeah, and they're very successful in doing that. Once they have momentum, they've never stopped. So, okay, let's let's kind of talk about you know, the impetus for getting on harvest. And mm -hmm. um, I think it's a fascinating story and ballsy for sure. So <laughs> uh, it's, it's great. So uh, tell us about that, Slim. And, you know, what, what compelled you to do this? Well, I, I, I don't like being in, you know, I was, I was in the technology corporate world. I don't like being in front of the computer that much anymore. Um, and I didn't want to just sit here and I, I'm a researcher, I'm an analyst. <laughs> and very good at it. But I said, this is not something I'm going to be able to look at a computer and figure out. Mm. And I said, man, let's go see the country again with all this madness. Cause uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a gypsy at heart in a lot of ways, nomadic for sure. And so I said, well, let's just write up an email and I'm going to send it out to some harvest companies and kind of BS my way into it. And sure enough, I had a lot of people wanting to hire me, but I found this really good outfit out of Kansas and they liked me and they said, yeah, you're a little bit older than the, because the, they're all 18, 19, 20, 21, stuff like that. They're young, young kids. They thought I could be kind of a mentor. Told them I had a lot of faith and, you know, I didn't tell them exactly what I was doing for sure. They would never have hired me. And so they, I ended up and we made our way up to North Dakota and we went through uh, basically a, a two month harvest up there and did the whole so orchestration of it. So, uh, Slim, explain what a harvest company is, and then sure. you know, I I, I want the audience to, I want yeah, the audience I'll to paint hear. a picture. Yeah, paint a picture, <laughs> and then tell us what your daily schedule looks like. Sure. On harvest, what you do is a harvest company. We'll say an independent harvest company, not a not a corporate harvest company. They usually run about six to eight combines, and what you do is you have to have everything operates around the combine because that's what gets your grain off of the stems basically so you basically have to have fuel trucks you have to have a couple of tractors you have to have your combines you have to have semis you have to have flatbed trailers 
Well, it's a seasonal business. You have wheat harvest. You have all kinds of different forms of harvest, of course. This was wheat harvest. And a lot of guys do wheat and corn harvest. So you get contracts with farmers. These contracts were up in North Dakota. And he had about 12 to 14,000 acres. And so we headed up to North Dakota. Well, you load everything up on these trailers. You got 12 semis. You got combines. You have a convoy. You know, back in the 70s, they had convoys. Well, we had a convoy. Mm-hmm. And you you make your way up from Kansas to North Dakota and you do a one shot deal because you got to get there because you can't drive at night because you're taking up the highway the whole way up there. So you're doing yeah, the a lot combine, of traveling. Yeah, the combine. So you're you're a wide load. I mean, those things are hanging mm-hmm. over the yeah. Yeah, you definitely got flaggers, you got spotters, you got all kinds of stuff. So you hit it for 12 hours and you get to your destination. And once you get to your destination, basically, you usually get there a day or two early because they're they're timing the harvest by dew points. And, you know, if, 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 it, if it's ready, if it's dry enough, basically, because that's part of your profit margins and everything. So it's a big or- orchestration on that side of things. So what you do is you basically unload all your equipment. You put the headers, which is what takes the grain off the stock. They're usually about 30 feet wide. They're huge. And you put those on front of the, the combines. The, the, you have to put two more wheels and tires on the combines that you have to haul because they won't fit on the trailers if you have four wheels on the front. So you have to use combines to put wheels on combines. And you have to have five guys understanding how to put that wheel on a combine. So you're putting headers, you're putting wheels on, you're getting grain carts, you're basically fueling, you're doing diesel, you're oiling up the the equipment. We get everything prepped, everything ready. And then the farmer and the harvester, our head harvester are talking. And the day that that dew point hits, you hit the road. And basically you use all the back roads of a dirt road, you know, of a small town. All these small towns up North Dakota have dirt roads that lead to them. So you'll go five to 10 miles on a dirt road and then you'll go out there and cut the field. You'll frame it basically. And then you, you start basically harvesting that wheat with all of that equipment. You have six combines that are taking the the grain off of the stem and into the, the combine, basically, um, grain holder. Well, the, the combine has a chute on it. So whenever it gets full, a tractor with a grain cart pulls up next to it as they're still harvesting the tractor and grain cart get next to each other. And basically the, the combine driver shoots that uh, grain into the cart that the tractor is. Okay. The tractor guy, the cart guy, he gets full 60 tons usually is what it is. 60,000 pounds. I'm sorry. Around to that number you, and then you have five, six, semis that have grain trailers ready to go he dumps that grain onto the semi okay the semi gets full and he goes to the silos and so you do that you get when the sun comes up and then you'll push and you'll push sometimes 14 15 hours a day it just depends on how much grain you got which crop you're in what the dew point is and how to switch how to navigate how to orchestrate everything and how how long did you how long were you on harvest? Uh, this one we had about a week of travel both directions. I was I was harvesting for six weeks straight. And yeah. what and so the what did you learn? I guess in that process that validated what you were learning, sure. and or what what new questions did you have, if any, after the harvest? Well, I 
you know, I went on wheat harvest, right? And that's what you do. You go on wheat harvest or you go on forage, which is corn harvest. Well, I get up to North Dakota and I find out that 14,000 of those acres, almost 50% of those acres were going to be rapeseed. That's <laughs> like, what? <laughs> Why? What? Wheat we use for, you know, bread, of course, everything that we use wheat for. We're basically harvesting just as much canola as we are wheat. Canola has zero nutrition. It is a fake commodity. It kills people in the long run. It causes obesity. It causes all kinds of different health ailments. That put a big light in my head. I was like, okay, you're onto something here. And well, okay, but so when you when you said that, okay, mm-hmm. you're telling me, and I don't have any idea. So why did that surprise you? Were you expecting to go up there and just harvest 100% wheat? Is, yeah. Is that your my my goal was to harvest wheat and to talk to grass fed uh, ranchers in 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 the Midwest. Because but, but, my... but you but you knew that rapeseed was harvested in the U.S. I mean that's how sure. we get our canola, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah. Okay. But fifty percent of your wheat harvest is actually now turned into canola harvests. That's a big problem. And what they tried to do is say that there was a wheat. Um, we had less wheat. We had a bad wheat year. We didn't have a bad wheat year. Wheat was great this year. There was no drought. There was nothing. I was in North Dakota, and that's all I talked about was, oh, wheat in North Dakota is burning up, or there's fires, or that. that's all you get on mainstream news. Wheat was fantastic. Well, so, yeah, the, yeah. so you have a narrative that's being pushed that the wheat harvest is down, and there's, mm-hmm. prob- there's probably a profit motive in there as well for the farmer. Well, <laughs> the farmer has to, he has to harvest, he has to grow and plant that, okay, People don't understand a, a farmer has to sign a technology use agreement anymore. What is a technology use agreement? Monsanto invented the technology use agreement. Why is a chemical company making a farmer sign a technology use agreement? Well, it's because the seed is corrupt. And what it is, is if you have to grow this seed from this provider and use these chemicals this year on that seed next okay. year. We had to okay. restart this whole process. Okay, so, so let's let's back this up some. So let's say I'm a farmer. Okay, okay. I've got I've got you know fifteen thousand acres of farmland, and the year is 2019, and you're Monsanto. So you're the Monsanto rep. You come to me. So w- what's the pitch to me as the farmer? You're going to make more money off canola this year than you are wheat. We're going to make okay. sure of that. Okay, it's, it hasn't. It's it's that easy. Okay, so all right, so that's the pitch. Okay, so 2019, 2020 comes along. What's the pitch in 2020? Well, you better, there's going to be the yields on wheat this year are not going to be as good. We see drought coming. So we're going to up your canola because you've made good profit off of that canola the last couple of years. So why don't you subsidize your yields, your subsidize your basically your profit margins, even though they're small, then you can save yourself by using this canola. Okay, so the, it's not that the farmer is being malicious. He's being manipulated, and he's dependent upon the Monsanto well, for, well, let me finish. Okay, so you may argue with that, but that's a, or push back on that. But No, I, but, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it to a new level. But Okay, okay. Oh, well, okay, then I want to hear that. So, but basically, <laughs> the, the farmer is, um, hey, I want to make a little bit more money. I've got to pay off my house, pay off my car, whatever. Uh, that sounds good to me, um, but he's also dependent upon Monsanto for, it's like the weatherman, he's dependent upon Monsanto for the prediction of 
and he trusts Monsanto to tell him what the wheat harvest is going to be or, or whatever. He just accepts it. Is that is that true? Well, he's captured. He's captured in a way that nobody talks about. He has to sign a technology use agreement. He cannot do anything unless he signs that technology use agreement. That is the thing that no, that is the white elephant in the room that nobody talks, not even the farmer is going to talk about. Okay. So, but okay. I'm sorry to keep interrupting, but I really want to understand this. So what if he says, you know, no, take this job and shove it or take this contract and shove it. Why, why can't I just plant on my 50,000 acres what I want to plant? Because your seed doesn't make it to market. That's how. It doesn't Simple make it. That. It doesn't make it to market because the market is captured as well, so I don't have access to it. Well, yeah, USDA. I mean, you got regenerative guys out there, but they're not dealing with the USDA in a lot of ways that everybody else has to deal with them. When you're dealing with the USDA, you're dealing with the medical industry. You're dealing with the pharmaceutical power. You're dealing with the agricultural department. You're dealing with the FDA. So to be captured is not that hard. To get uncaptured is pretty damn hard to accomplish, but we're seeing that happen. So whenever I say the word capture, that's that's a big generalization, and I understand that. No, you cannot go out there and brown bag your crop. You have to be dependent because you know what? Those combines are a half a million dollars a piece. Okay, why is all this happening? Well, because we live in a debt economy because our money has no value. So they can say, hey, I've got 10,000 acres. I've got 2,000 acres. But you know how much debt those guys are carrying? You know? Okay. And what so are they going to say? No, I'm not going to sign this technology agreement. No, I'm not going to plant this seed. I, it grows. I don't, I don't even, I'm not even the guy that sprays the pesticide on it anymore. I'm not even the same guy that sprays the herbicide and the guy that sprays the herbicide is not the same guy that sprays the pesticide. So, and so I don't I, even harvest my crop anymore. I just plant the seed. He's a technician. Yes. He's, he, okay. I mean, you know, I, I think it's hard for people to understand this, this whole capture environment, but I've seen it in medicine and yeah. you know, the, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, when I first started practicing medicine, 80% of physicians were in private practice, and now 80% are employed by large hospital systems, and we're, we, we are captured. We have to do what our mm -hmm. hospital systems tell us to do, and yes. the, the hospital system I uh, used to work at, they're, they're telling their physicians and their staff to get jabbed like all other major systems in the, in the country, and um, if I did what they're telling their doctors to do in my practice, I would have been sued for malpractice. Sure. But, and, and a lot of doctors aren't going to buck against that because doctors make a lot of money. So I totally understand the capture. I, I get it. Um, mm -hmm. and it, but it's just fascinating to see how, how it kind of works through every industry. And, you know, as a student of history, just reading what happened in the lead up to World War One, and then later on to World War Two, how effectively the government, especially under Nazi Germany with Hitler, um, it was the businesses that he finally had to convince to support yeah. his political career, and it was a cooperation between business and government that uh, fed the the war machine. So, um, I totally understand it. So the. I, I guess the the farmer that your grandfather was and the generations before you, they ultimately had a responsibility and 
a desire to take care of the community that they lived in and that they fed. And I think it's the same thing with doctors when they're in private practice, you know, I, I have a great joy when I go to the grocery store and I see a patient. I know a lot of doctors don't like that, but I do. But, you know, it, when, you, when you live in the community that you're taking care of, there's a big responsibility there. But yeah. if, you're, if you're feeding somebody in, you know, sub-Saharan Africa with your grain, it's like, uh, I don't care. You know, just give me the contract and I'll sign it. Yeah. And, you know, that is, that's a good way of looking at the philosophy of it all. It takes the intimacy and it, it takes the value of community out of out of everybody's daily actions in a way that people don't maybe that have lived in their city their whole life don't understand. And I'm not trying to be this country bumpkin dude saying, "Oh, the days gone by; those are so good." <laughs> I'm not being that guy. I'm being something that there's value in to be able to take on and be able to be able to take on the responsibility of basically supplying value to your community in which you live. There's something there that has been stolen. And it's been stolen in our our families. You know, it's been stolen in our, basically, our communities for sure. It's been stolen basically in the virtual world that we've created. And when I was, whenever I was in, in the intelligence labs, I worked with a lot of marketing people and I hated the marketing side of it because they've taken the human out of marketing you know it's just basically data sets and everything and how they manipulate marketing these days we've taken the human out of food and that's something that i've realized in you know going back that's that's really i knew i had to get out there and look at these farmers and i it was i was having a conversation with this farmer one day and he 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 was tired you know spiritually mentally physically because it's a harvest but there was something I'd never seen in a farmer's eyes before. I was able to look at that man in his eyes, directly into his eyes and see, see some pain that, you know, only maybe I could uh, understand because of where I come from. And there's something there, there there's a quiet desperation that is afoot. Mm-hmm. And they know how to go around that quiet desperation, basically now with our food supply, with basically gratification basically an addiction that people do not want to discuss well you look at all right let's look at let's just look you know people don't choose to be unhealthy they don't choose to be overweight that's it's not on the person anymore you know they blame the people all the time oh you're gluttonous you're this you're that that's crap because what they've done they've been able to hijack our basically our dopamine fixes and our taste buds our senses they've been able to hijack our taste buds in ways that people have no idea and they're about to do a new round of that you know they're talking about oh it doesn't taste like fake meat doesn't taste like a hamburger it's going to we already know it's going to and so they've got their plan they understand but you know we won't get too far ahead of ourselves right now well, uh, yeah, I mean, that's crazy. I, I, um, as a physician, I, I was, a, uh, in addition to doing ear, nose and throat, um, uh-huh. I was also a sleep medicine doctor and I treated a lot of patients with sleep apnea and right. for me, diet was always, when I say diet in quotations here, for me, it was always a big talking point because 
that was the big elephant in the room for my patients that were having sleep apnea. Sure. And I was one of the, and I'm a surgeon. I mean, I don't, it's not like I like to um, talk about uh, how to eat healthy and all that, but I found right. that none of my colleagues were doing it. So I, I, I spent a lot, a fair amount of my time doing that. So, um, and getting back to the capture portion, the reason that it's not talked about is because Medicare, which, you know, we're, mm -hmm. we're, all, we're all not under Medicare, but Medicare sets the standards for payment. Medicare right. doesn't, Medicare doesn't pay me to talk to my patients about living healthy or not being overweight. And so if, if I don't get paid for it, I'm not going to talk about it. So that's, that's the, that's the, that's the capture on the medical side. Uh, well, yeah. Haven't we taken the human out of the medical uh, field as well? No, yeah, no question. No question. I mean, and yeah. I would, I would tell my patients, you know, that there's, there's a reason the diet industry is a billion dollar industry. You know, every year there's a new diet that and it's just, it's just crazy. So, yeah, I, what, I don't like the diet industry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it just, it just feeds into what, what you're saying, you know, it, it's it just does. another, it's another piece of the puzzle. So, yeah. Talk because you've mentioned the dopamine twice already. So, um, do, you know, at the at the big companies, Google, Facebook, and you know whatnot. I mean, are they actually using uh, neuroscience to addict people and uh, numb them? Or because I sure. on the on 100%. the medical so on the medical side, I'll read studies about we studied this, and that there'll be a a study about dopamine release causing whatever, but it sounds like there's actually a manipulation on the, the tech side to actually take advantage of that of that addiction. Yeah, I mean, Facebook's already admitted that they, whenever they, something as simple as the like button, you know, that they knew that they were engineering something, that they did studies of the dopamine release. Right now, as we speak, there's a guy somewhere, basically, maybe, I don't know, Silicon Valley, getting paid a couple million dollars a, a year to make you feel absolutely the best you've ever felt about yourself he is engineering ways with all kinds of technology to be able to do that well right next to his office there's a guy getting paid two million dollars a year to make you feel absolutely horrible about yourself you get these in there okay that's the yin and yang the good and evil of technology that people don't understand so whenever you have that type of algorithm and artificial intelligence working and playing it becomes game theory in a way that people don't understand. Well, how do you beat that algorithm? Well, you got to do, you got to create your own algorithm, but a lot of people don't even understand what algorithms are. So they're be, they're able to capture us in ways and you, you dang right. They are, they, they're, they're, uh, they're definitely engineering ways to deliver chemicals to your brain in ways that's never been done before. It's crazy. You know, you, you're, what you're saying about augmented reality, I don't know if you've listened to much of Jeff, Jeff Booth or read his book, The Price of Tomorrow, but you know he yeah. says that there's technology coming that we just have no idea. We, we're going to be able to be in a conference room with people that are you know sitting halfway around the world, but we're going to feel like they're actually physically next to us. So sure, yeah, it, it's, it's just it's crazy. Here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's here. Yeah. Do so. What's what's the solution? I mean the I guess what's the solution? What what's Bitcoin's role in in this whole solution? Yeah, that's a you know, it, it's not a hard question for me to answer, basically, because I know how I feel and I know how I see everything. 
basically in your life, you have to get back to the source of the seed in everything that you do. You have to take two steps back. Okay. Bitcoin is just not some get rich quick thing going on here. It's not anything about Bitcoin is so much more. It is a philosophy that gives you a portal to be able to understand and look into yourself in a way that our engineered society has never allowed us to find ourselves within. Start there. And then what do you do? You do something like I'm doing. I'm building the Texas Beef Initiative because the most important thing for me is for basically children, number one, adults who come after the children is to be able to have a nutrient supply like I had growing up. Why is beef so important? Well, one, it's Texas. Two, we have cattle ranchers. We lead the nation in cattle ranching. We lead the nation and the world in protein supply to people's brains. And so I take the Bitcoin philosophy and what the Bitcoin protocol can do through a monetary exchange value system. I put all that together and I basically start thinking like Bitcoin. I start acting like Bitcoin in everything I do in life because I've looked at the source of the seed in the ways I think, the ways I eat, the ways I consume content, the people I talk to. And by doing that, I'm probably the most content and peace of mind I've ever been in my life. And that was because I came across understanding our food was hijacked and understanding what Bitcoin truly is. I hope for what Satoshi wanted it to be whenever he was basically bringing it to to us. And so by doing that, you know, we have to take two steps back and we have to, we have to take a different vantage point of our lives, of our understanding of everything. We just can't talk about Bitcoin all the time on Twitter. That's not a solution. No. Yeah. It really isn't. And it's not going to number, not going to go up unless we incorporate it in our, in our lives in ways that we need to be creative and innovative with. You know, I told Marty the other day is we're going through a form of prohibition with our lives. You know, they're decreasing our personal space, basically physical space. With prohibition comes mass innovation. Well, in the Bitcoin space, we might get it wrong, but let's just start innovating in ways we never thought we could. I never thought I'd be trying to incorporate Bitcoin protocol into a cow, (laughs) into our food supply. But you yeah, know, look yeah. now. I look back. I take two spec. It makes total sense to do it. Yeah, no, that that's that's well said. I I think from my perspective, uh, Bitcoin has allowed me to to definitely slow down and reorient. I mean, for me to look into my soul, I you know I I lean on my faith for that. But I, I think that's all well said. Do you think that? And and I I totally agree with you. I mean, we a lot of us spend a lot of time on Twitter, and I, you know I I've never used Twitter until this last year. I've been in on it for many Me years, neither. <laughs> never, never really used it, but, um, you know, it, it kind of harkens back to, you know, what we're trying to do down in Guatemala with Bitcoin Lake. We're, we're trying to do something with it, you know, ch- change people's lives. And it seems like, you know, with, um, the beef, beef initiative and, or with farmers, if they could adopt Bitcoin and rely on Bitcoin's exponential growth, they, they may not be so dependent upon the one world food group anymore. 
um, that, yeah. that, that may be the key to, to actually break those bonds. I think that's definitely the long-term goal. And let's break this down in stages of adoption of Bitcoin and let's say the beef industry, of course. Well, right now we're bringing the OSHA app into the conversation. And basically Michael with the OSHA app and I have been talking and I've announced this a couple other places. But what's the, what, what is that? Basically it's a transactional tool that can be used between a consumer and a merchant to, I want to buy something. I can, and the, the merchant says, yes, I accept Bitcoin. Well, I use the OSHA app. I pay, let's say I pay $700 for a quarter of a cow. Okay. He accepts Bitcoin. We do. I have my wallet. He has his wallet. We exchange, we make the exchange. He gets that Bitcoin, right? He doesn't have to keep it in Bitcoin. He can keep, he can transfer it all into fiat if he wants to. And he can say, let's say my angle is like, okay, you were paying 2.7% for that transaction to the banks. You don't have to pay that to the banks now. Just keep that 2.7% in Bitcoin and just let it sit there. Mm -hmm. Okay. He likes that. He's like, well, that's a good idea. Bitcoin's, you know, got a lot of attention. He doesn't know anything about Bitcoin. He doesn't have to compromise his fiat and him running his business. Once he starts making those transactions, what every time a transaction happens, the merchant gets some sats back, the consumer gets some sats back by using the OSHI app. What's the OSHI? I've not heard of that before. It's just a, it's a it's an application you can go download right now. OSHIapp.com. O S H I. Yep. Huh. Interesting. Okay. Very cool. What they're doing, Michael is working with Michael, uh, Kyle Murphy in Austin. They're, they're at the Capitol factory. They're going to have a, basically a block party on rainy street in Austin on December 2nd. And they're, they're onboarding restaurants right now. So there's restaurants in Austin, Texas. There's merchants already starting to use the Bitcoin app or the OSHI app. Very cool. I just onboarded the first cattle rancher in the state of Texas to start accepting uh, Bitcoin through the OSHI app. Very cool. Is that available in Spanish by chance? <laughs> Not yet. It's going to. I think we already had a, re a request, but Michael is, he's heading down to El Salvador here pretty quick. So he is working with people in El Salvador. Yeah, I'll be down in El Salvador next week for the uh, awesome. adopting Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, so I, I know Kyle Murphy. So Kyle Murphy's, I don't know him, but I, I follow him on Twitter. So he's working sure. with, with that group. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Very cool. So I'm working with the OSHI. We're going to tie the Texas Beef Initiative with OSHI. We're partnered up, and so basically we're going to onboard every cattle. I'm, that's my intention. Is the every local producer of pure protein in the state of Texas? It doesn't have to be cattle. It can be fowl. It can be lamb. It can be you know whatever it is. Hog. I want to get everyone in Texas using the OSHI app, basically to start accepting Bitcoin and start basically leveraging the power of Bitcoin and the long-term value that they can gain from having a little bit of their value in that Bitcoin. And, and basically recapture them, bring them back yeah. to the good side. Okay. Yeah. Right. And they're not compromising their banking system. They're not compromising anything. They're just choosing to put their value and just storing it in somewhere that's secure right now. I love, yeah, it. I love that. Yeah. I love that idea. That's fantastic. Um, Slim, I, I, I know, I mean, we've been talking for a while. I don't want to take too much more of your time. And Matt, if you have any other questions, just pipe in. But is there is there any more that you want to share 
that, uh, and we're definitely going to stay connected, obviously, but sure. I mean, do, do you think there's anything else that you'd like to share that people should be aware of? Yeah, I mean, in each podcast, it's different, but I want re- people to really understand like where I'm coming from on this. I'm not coming from anywhere except saying, hey, people, we can't take our food supply for granted anymore. They're making moves against it in ways you don't know and you don't understand. And we have to, as a society and as a Bitcoin community, because this is where it's going to start. And we, as a Bitcoin community, we have to bring food intelligence into the Bitcoin conversation last year. And we should have been doing it before now. I don't care who you are, we have to start doing this. And we have to bring it in a way that it's not about LARPing. It's not about trying to get attention here. This is about, you're not gonna be sovereign if you're not getting nutritional supply to your body or your brain. And your kids are about to be trapped right now in ways that nobody's talking about. 46% of our children in the United States between the uh, ages of five and 11 are now overweight or obese. That is a travesty. That is child abuse. And so we as Bitcoiners got to quit bumping our gums and do something about it. And now we have a utility tool that we can do that. And no matter where you are, you're going to start hearing about this. So if you're at, if you're at a restaurant, you're going to ask people, do you take Bitcoin? Do you take the OSHA app? Why not? This restaurant is, that's all you have to do. You don't have to be a salesperson. That's awesome. You know, the, um, I, I lost my train of thought, Matt. Can you save me with a question? <laughs> well, hey, listen, uh, I, I mean, I, I grew up on a farm. I grew up on a chicken farm in Arkansas. None well, of this ever heard any of this stuff before. So this is very fascinating for me to hear right. a lot of these things. And I mean, my observations are just, I, I love your your vision for what you're talking about. Uh, it makes it crystal clear. So I'm on, I'm on board and like ways to be able to help support that mission of what you're talking about was actually just looking up the OSHA app as you're talking about this is just so so good for me personally to hear this hear your vision for this and ultimately what I hear you saying on a lot of this is like that there is no better way uh you know to um to to our health than just to take personal responsibility for that where that food comes from and what we're putting into our body and I absolutely see the connection what you're talking about with bitcoin of using that even as a tool and an instrument for us to be able to observe where our money and our commerce and the way that we exchange goods and services and what we find value in. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, just absolutely, uh, lo- love your, you love your vision for all of this, this is incredible. Yeah. Uh, thanks for that. I appreciate that. So the th- the thought I had was, you know, that I came across an investment opportunity. Someone mentioned that they're building these giant warehouses, multi-story warehouses in, uh, California where they're going to be growing, um plants or or you know food and they're they're going to be on a conveyor belt and they're timed as they go through the warehouse with different sunlight and water and so they're they're yeah. basically warehousing our our food manufacturing so it's, yeah. it's it's really crazy well a lot of people don't say oh that's innovation that's saving the planet of course they're going to bring that narrative 
about saving the planet what they've done is they've killed our soil and nobody you know you've heard that a lot mm -hmm. uh, and so they killed the soil so why do they, that's why they're growing plants in that warehouse with timed basically they're digitizing our food system in ways that people don't understand and that's about to really kick off because they're basically they're creating a whole new economy based around that type of digitization of our food supply and they're going to say oh this is really saving the plant no it's because you screwed up our soil you screwed up our lands you screwed up processes that lasted for thousands of years and now you're you're running you're, you're running from the problem instead of saying regenerative farming is the way to do this because yeah, yeah. we have enough land we have enough people it is productive it is a better way of life it is a lifestyle people don't have to be the regenerative farmer or rancher they should associate themselves with somebody they should go and shake his hand look him in the eyes and say i love what you're doing how can i help you yeah we get people thinking about that i talk a lot about lifestyle let's reinvent our lifestyle in a way that starts at home and make it and turn it into an international lifestyle that everybody wants to do yeah that's excellent uh, slim I've, I've just got one more question as we sure. as we wrap things up so behind you i see your your black hat your black cowboy hat and your and your lodge uh skillet so yeah. how do you, how do you decide which one you're going to wear <laughs> Right. <laughs> well, the skillet I take anywhere when I'm on the road or anything like that. And that, that hat basically is always on whenever I'm not on a podcast because I have these headphones. <laughs> so usually it's 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 right hand. I'm right handed. So I go right first and then left. Yeah. And I thought, it's like this. Yeah. I thought maybe the skillet was when you needed to, to guard yourself against flaming arrows or something. <laughs> I have a special place around here. I'll take that skillet. It's out there in Paladora Canyon. There you go. There's some pictures sure. I think I've I've put on there. So Oh yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. Very, very cool. Excellent. And yes, I, I, I have two cast iron skillets that are in use. One is travel, one is on my stove top, which is gas. And that's the only thing I cook in. I love my lodge. I've got uh, a Dutch oven, a skillet, and a griddle that are uh, and yeah. a tortilla. Tortilla. Um, awesome. Uh, yeah. Anyway, all right, my friend. This has been a fantastic discussion. I've learned a lot, and I think that our view, our listeners are going to learn a lot and and really kind of make them think. And I, I know where to find you on Twitter, and and I'll yeah. also put your stuff with the your Substack and your the Texas Beef Initiative as well. So sure. Thanks, and there's, thanks so much. Yeah. Yeah. There's going to be uh, some more information coming out of basically the platform of the Texas Beef Initiative that is in works right now. And then, of course, Twitter is great. And then the Substack. And I don't mind sharing this one encrypted email address. It's uh, txlim at mtminitiative.com. Okay, so excellent. You can put that in there as well. Yep. And, and man, I really appreciate you reaching out. I like doing. Uh, cast like this and i like to you know that's really to the message of you know our lifestyles our thought processes our future you know something that has a little faith in it and uh you know it's very important to me that's so. awesome well it, it's good that you're from texas too so uh dang right <laughs> heck yeah heck yeah yeah all right all right my friend thanks so much have a good day thank you thank you matt thank you pat okay bye-bye take care bye-bye I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Please like and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you would leave a review, that would be fantastic as well. Peace.